Welcome to the month of October, which I think may be the most glorious month of the entire year. We've got cool weather rolling in. You've got pretty leaves. The leaves are starting to change. You've got fire pits. We've got football. We've got pumpkin-flavored everything for, for some of you sickos out there. We've got something for everybody. October is just a glorious month. And we have a couple of things coming up this month that I just wanna sort of make you aware of before we dive into our message this morning. The first thing is in just a couple of weeks, October 17th from three to 5 p.m. right outside on our front lawn, we're gonna have what we're calling a hootenanny. Now, if you're from the South, you kinda already know what that means, but that's kind of a music hoedown, throwdown. We're gonna have a great time outside on the lawn. Again, that's about two weeks. The 17th, 3 to 5 p.m., we're going to have live music on the stage out there for everybody to just come and enjoy. We'd encourage you, invite your, your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates. It's going to be a really just fun, non-threatening time to sort of hang out. We're going to have a food truck out there. So come hungry, maybe have a, a late lunch with us, an early dinner. Uh, we're also going to have some free stuff for the kids, popcorn, cotton candy, all kinds of great things. And then on top of that, we're gonna be partnering with one of our local city partnerships. You just saw the video, Transformation Village that day. And so we're asking you to do one thing when you come to just enjoy the day with us. We want you to come with some pillows. As you can see right here, some, some brand new packaged pillows, right? And so if you, if you pulled one out and you slept on it, you're like, man, I don't, I don't really like the way that one feels. We, can, we can't use it. So, so if, it's got, if you've used it at all, please don't bring it. If it's got some stains on it, definitely don't bring it. But we need brand new, in the package, pillows. And then on top of that, we also need some twin sheets. And there's a lot of twin sheets that Rodney keeps on throwing. <laughs> twin sheets that Rodney keeps throwing at me. So we need brand new, in the package, twin sheets and pillows for these ladies and these children that are gonna be moving into Transformation Village as we partner with them to eradicate homelessness for women and children in the city of Asheville. And so please come out, mark your calendars, October 17th, Hootenanny, 3 to 5 p.m. We're gonna have an absolute blast together. And just think of your price of admission being some brand new pillows and perhaps uh, a package of, of twin sheets so we can help the homeless in our city. We're gonna have a great time. The other thing is, uh, as Rodney briefly mentioned, if you've been around New Life at any amount of time, you know that October is kind of a special month for us because October is Missions Month. So we should kind of just dial back from what we're doing in October and we really try to hone in and focus in on our mission as a church outside of these four walls in our city, in our nation and the world at large. And so that's kind of gonna be what's driving our, our messages and our focus this month. And then typically at the end of the month, we kind of culminate the month with what we call the Send Missions Offering. So we kind of just pool our resources and then that offering and the pledges from that offering go to fund all of our uh, missions in the next year, so 2021. We're actually gonna bump the date, so we're not gonna collect the, that offering at the end of October. We're actually gonna bump it to November 15th. So you've got about six weeks to be thinking about and praying about. If you're a guest, this, this is not for you, but if you're a part 
of our faith family. So you're a member here or you just attend here, but you consider this your church family. We would ask you, I would ask you to do what Cheryl and I are gonna do. And we're just gonna pray and say, God, what do you want us to sacrifice so that the gospel can go out in our city, into our nation, into the ends of the earth? So how, how many pumpkin flavored lattes can you sacrifice over the next six weeks so that the kingdom of Jesus can press forward? And then on November 15th, we're gonna take that offering. You can do that online. Well, you'll also be able to give it here. And uh, it's gonna be a great time of worship. So just plan on that. November 15th, we're gonna have our, our send offering. Be thinking and praying about what God would have you sacrifice for that great cause. Now, let me ask you a question. When you, when you think of, for those of you who are, who are local, when you think of the city of Asheville, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Do you just think of the city of Asheville? What, what comes to your mind? And I, I, would, I would guess that for some of you, uh, you thought of something positive. You thought about uh, beautiful mountains or hiking on the Blue Ridge Parkway up to a waterfall, one of my favorite things to do. Or, or maybe you thought of great restaurants and we have world-class cuisine right, right here in Nashville. So, so, so for some of you, you probably thought of something positive. In essence, you thought of what the city can do for you, right? Nothing wrong with that. I I would say I'm probably in that camp. When I think of Asheville, I think of those positive things, uh, things that I enjoy, things that I get out of the city where I live. Now, others of you, if you're just being honest at home, others of you didn't really have a positive thought. Others of you probably actually had a negative thought, right? So some of you, maybe you're not really down with the politics in our city or or maybe you went downtown once, you're like, man, I've never seen so many facial tattoos and piercings, and man, I, I'm not, those are not my people. I'm just, I'm not going back down there again. So for some of you, maybe you had a negative thought like that. But whatever you think of Asheville, whatever that kind of, that first thought is when you think of the city of Asheville, whether it's positive or negative, I'd be willing to bet that almost all of us have an incomplete view of how we should see this place in which we live. And so my, my hope is this morning that we would discover how God views the city that we call home and that we would learn to begin seeing the city that we call home through the lens that God sees the people of our city. Now, as Rodney mentioned, we're in a series called Encounters with Jesus. I want us to start our time in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have a Bible at home, let me encourage you, grab it. Open it up, turn it on, head for Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, that's where we're gonna start. And in this story, Luke 14, we see Jesus encounter this really kind of big wig, big shot Pharisee guy, right? So he's one of the religious leaders, but he's like one of the leaders of the leaders. So this is like a guy with a lot of power. People would have known who he was. And this guy, for whatever reason, invites Jesus to a party. To, to a feast at his house, uh, which, is, which is pretty cool. And Jesus gets there, he even heals a sick guy at this party, which is also pretty cool, which then in turn ticked off the Pharisees because there's these really kind of legalistic, heartless guys. And then Jesus does something really that I found a little bit strange when he's at this party as a guest. He, he actually starts calling out the party guests. <laughs> So, so Jesus is kind of observing at the party and he noticed that as these party guests are arriving at this great feast, 
They're all kind of kind of jockeying for position to get the seats of honor at the table. And so Jesus just, he just kind of publicly calls them out. He basically tells them that they need to learn humility. He's like, man, you guys are a bunch of arrogant punks. Y'all need to learn a thing or two about humility. And so right out, out of the gate, Jesus is already kind of party fouling it up here at this party that he's been invited to. And he's, he's not done, right? He then begins to call out the host of the party, right? This, this powerful guy, this, this wealthy guy, the guy that's hosting this party. He actually begins to call this guy out as well. Watch this. We're gonna start in verse 12 in Luke 14. It says, uh, he said also to the man who invited, so Jesus speaking to the party host. This is what he says. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because you, they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now get this, Jesus is literally chastising the host of the party at his own party. Now I'm just, just to guess here, Jesus probably didn't get invited back to the next party at this dude's house because Jesus is saying, hey, hey guy, I, I, want you to, I want you to look around. Look around your own, this is your house, this is your party, and I want you to tell me one thing, where are the single moms? Where are the orphans? Where, where are the widows? Where are the drug addicts? Where are the prostitutes? Where are the people that cannot repay you? Man, all these people look just like you and talk just like you and they believe just like you and they vote just like you. And they're all rich. They're all in your same social circle. And guess what? The next time they throw a big, fancy, lavish party, they're gonna invite you. But you know what? I bet that was your plan all along, wasn't it? That's why you invited all these people, so that you could get invited back to their next big party. Now watch Jesus kind of drive home this point with a masterful parable beginning in verse 16. It says, but he, Jesus, said to him, now this is the parable. He says, a man, and we know from Matthew 22 that this man Jesus is talking about is actually, he's a great king, right? So a great king once gave a great banquet and he invited many people. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. So please have me excused. Another said, well, I bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go examine them. So please have me excused from the party. Another said, I, I have married a, a wife and therefore I, I, cannot, I cannot come to the party. That's the first guy that's probably got a semi-legitimate excuse, right? He's, the guy's like, man, I, I just got married. I gotta mop the floors and clean out the dishwasher, man. I, can't, I don't have time to go to parties anymore. Verse 21, he says, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. 
And so in this story that Jesus is telling really to rebuke this religious leader, he says, okay, here, here's a story. This is gonna teach you a lesson. There's this great king and he's throwing a, a great party, a big feast, a big banquet, an epic party, a party to end all parties. And Jesus is that great king in this story. And I think we, those of us who are followers of Jesus, his people, the church, we are his servants in this story who are being sent out into the streets and the lanes of the city to invite people in, to engage the, those who are kind of disenfranchised, the, the poor, the orphan, the blind, those who are far from God. Remember, Jesus' last recorded words in Acts 1-8 are to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Church, listen, our, our calling as Christians, as believers, always starts right where God has planted us, right where we live, work, and play. Yes, church, we, we, we need to, we must go to the nations. We have done that as a church. We're gonna continue doing that in the future. As soon as things open up and we're allowed to go to the nations, I promise you we're gonna be on airplanes. We're gonna be going all over this country and all over the world. We're gonna continue to do that. But we gotta understand, it starts right here in our city, where you go to school, where you work. Everything that we do, that's right here. In fact, in Acts 17, I wanna show you, this will be on the screens for you. Acts 17 says it this way. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this, this is where it gets cool. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And what that means is this friend, you are not here by accident. It's not just happenstance that you happen to live where you live at this point in time in history. What Acts 17 just said is you are alive in the year 2020 in Asheville, North Carolina, as a part of New Life Community Church because he chose to plant you here for this time in this place so that his kingdom would be expanded through you in this place. Have you ever thought about that? Why, why is it that you weren't born in the 1600s in London? Why, why is it that you weren't born a thousand BC, somewhere in the Roman Empire or the middle of Africa. And what Acts 17 says is because God wanted you right here, right now. He chose you for this place and this time for his kingdom expansion. Now I realize God has called some of you to this area for a short season, college students. Uh, there are a lot of people that tend to move here just for a couple of years because they love the mountains and they get here and they figure out everything's really expensive. And so then they go to Charlotte or Atlanta or somewhere cheaper to live. Others of you born and raised here. Some of you are transplants that will spend the rest of your life on this planet right here in these beautiful mountains. In either case, I want you to know you are not here by accident. You're just not. You are, you are here to be sent out by a great king into the streets of our city to invite people into his great feast, his party, his banquet. Now, let me, let me show you something really cool in the Old Testament. If you got your Bible, go ahead and flip back to the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. That's kind of middle of your Bible, right after Isaiah. Now, here's, here's the scene in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. 
Babylon at the time was like the military power of the day. Uh, they came in and they would just conquer nations and uh, destroy people. And that happened to Israel. So they, Babylon comes in and they conquer Israel and they probably killed a bunch of people. But, but Babylon was, was really sneaky in one unique way. So they would, they would come into these nations and they would conquer them, but they wouldn't kill the leaders, right? So they, they wouldn't kill uh, the people in power, the politicians, the priests, the pastors, business owners. That They wouldn't kill the leaders of that culture. What they would actually do is they would bring the leaders of that particular culture that they had just conquered, and they'd actually bring them back into Babylon. They'd bring them to the city and they would give them nice homes and they would give them nice jobs. And, and what, what the, it would, again, it was, it was brilliant strategy. It was sneaky. Because what the Babylonians knew is that within two or three generations, they would just assimilate into the Babylonian culture. So the original culture of the conquered people would disappear and they would just kind of become a part of the Babylonian culture. Really smart. But Israel kind of knew that this was the strategy. And so when Babylon conquered the uh, nation of Israel and, and brought them to the city and offered to give them nice houses and nice jobs, they initially refused to go in. Just kind of camped out on the outside of the city. They're like, man, we're not gonna fall for this trick. We know, we know what they're trying to do. And all of a sudden, God sends his people a letter through the prophet Jeremiah that would have been absolutely shocking to them. And I think this is super relevant to us today as God's people in 2020. So I want you to listen to this. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse four. This is what he says to his people that have been exiled right on the outskirts of Babylon. This is what he says to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So who sent them into exile? Was it the Babylonians? God's saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm sovereign. You're, you're in exile because I sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse five, this is where it gets shocking. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters away in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Where? In Babylon. And do not decrease. Verse seven gets even more radical. But seek the welfare of the city. God, what are you talking about? This is, you're talking about seeking the welfare of Babylon, the people who just, just conquered us, the people who just killed the people that we love, the people who hate us because of what we believe and the God that we worship? Yes, I want you to seek their welfare. The city of Babylon, where I've sent you into exile. And listen to this, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This would have been shocking. And so God tells them three things. One, he says, listen, I want you to go into the city. Stop living on the outside. Stop separating yourself. I want you to go into the city. I want, you to, I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to get married and have kids and have families. In other words, I want, you to, I want you to live in the city. I want you to make it your home. Don't, don't withdraw. Don't separate from the predominant culture. I want you to live among these people. I want you to be salt and light. Live among them. Be a part of the culture. This would have been mind-blowing for Jews all these years ago. 
Secondly, he says to them in verse seven, he says, listen, I've, I've sent you there as, as exiles. So don't, 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 don't forget that. Now, we, we've talked all summer long about what it means to live in exile. We spent the whole summer in the letter of First Peter, and that, that book is all about how to live in exile. The bottom line is an exile is someone who is living in a place that is home, and yet it is not their ultimate home. And so God also is reminding them, as he says, listen, go in and, and live among the people and be a part of culture. He's also reminding them that they're exiles. That's their DNA. That's their identities. In other words, don't assimilate to the culture. I want you to live in the culture, but be careful that you don't become the culture. Don't begin to worship their gods. Don't, don't adopt their value system or their sexual ethics. I want you to live a godly life, but I want you to do it among the pagans. Just don't become a pagan in the process. Now that is a real challenge, isn't it, friend? Because the reality is I see Christians today who tend to go to one extreme or the other. So I would say you have one group of Christians who, uh, man, they are so afraid of the predominant culture that they just kinda wanna, wanna separate entirely. So they just, they, they just kind of want to create little safe Christian bubbles for themselves and their friends and their families. And that is not at all what God has called us to do. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have another group of Christians and men, they're all about living in the city and being a part of the culture, but they slowly then become the culture. They forget that they're exiles. They forget their identity in Christ and so they begin to adopt the culture's values. They begin to adopt the culture's sexual ethics. They begin to worship some of the same gods of materialism or success or whatever it is. And so slowly over time, they lose their distinctiveness. They lose their saltiness as it were. And both extremes, I would argue, miss God's heart entirely. We are to live in our culture. We are to be a part of our culture, our city, but we don't become the culture, right? We, we don't adopt their value system. We hold fast to the values and the ethics of the kingdom of Jesus. Do you, do you see the difference there? And do you see the tension? And do you see how hard that is? God doesn't call us to one extreme or the other. He calls us to balance, to live in the culture. Don't, don't separate from the culture and yet don't become the culture itself. There's a third thing God tells them that I think would have actually been even more shocking than the first two things. Remember, first of all, he says, go into the city, make your home there. Don't separate yourself. Don't, don't kind of be a, a little holy Christian bubble. Be a part of the city, be a part of the culture. Number two, he tells them you're in exile. Remember, this is not who you are. This is not your identity. Resist becoming the culture around you. You are a part of the kingdom of God. Never forget that. And then thirdly, he tells them to seek the welfare of the city. These people who just conquered them. These people undoubtedly had friends, family members, probably just murdered by the Babylonian army. And he's saying, I, I want you to seek their welfare. I want you to actually pray for the city. Then he says something really incredible. He says, because in their welfare, you will find your own welfare. Now, Tim Keller, a pastor up in New York City, argues that there are four types or four kinds of churches when it comes to how a church views or interacts with the city that they're in. I think he's really right, so I'm gonna share those with you. Four kinds of churches when it comes to uh, the cities around them or the cities that they're in. Number one, you have churches that are, that are just in the city. So a church in the city. Now, 
you know, I, I would argue this is probably the most common type of church in our culture right now. These, these are churches that I would say are probably characterized by apathy. They just, they're kind of in the city, but they don't really think about the city or the culture around them. They, they don't really have a strategy to, to reach the culture. They're not, they don't really hate the culture, but they don't really love the culture of the city. They just don't engage it. They're just kind of neutral. They just kind of coexist. We, get, we just kind of do our thing and they do their thing. And yeah, I know we're just like right down the street from the whole entire city and the culture, but we don't really care. We just got our own little thing going on. I would say most churches, even in Asheville, probably would fall into this category. They're just churches in the city. They're just, they're just there. The second type of church, I would argue, is a, is a church that would be against the city. So you have a church in the city, doesn't really care. The second type of church is you have a church that's against the city. Now, these are the kind of churches that I would say, and some of us grew up in these kind of churches. I would say these are the kind of churches where they are mostly characterized by anger, Right, they, you, you just you go into one of their church services and th- there's a dude on the stage, he's just kind of like frothing and foaming at the mouth and man, we're against this and we're against that and all those sinners out there, man, and they just kind of rail against the city and they rail against the culture around them. I call these kind of bubble churches. They just wanna create little Christian bubbles and they wanna talk about how much they hate everything outside their little bubble. And it, really, these churches kind of remind me of the story of Jonah. Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Jonah, God, God, God calls Jonah, this prophet, to go to this wicked city, this great, huge city called Nineveh. And what does Jonah do in the story? Do you remember? Does he go? No, he's, he's disobedient. Jonah doesn't go to that great city called Nineveh. He actually, he runs the opposite direction. God has to send a storm and a great fish, and he swallows Jonah, and that great fish spits him out on the shores of Nineveh. Because Jonah was... He, was really, he really was a bigot, he was a racist. He hated the Ninevites, but God loved them and God demanded that Jonah go into the city to be with the people in their culture, to preach the gospel. And the amazing thing is these wicked people in this great city actually listened and they believed and they repented. But there are a lot of churches, man, they just spend their lives just angry, angry people, angry at the culture, Angry at the city, angry at everything. That's not the kind of church that God has called us to be. So you have a church in the city, but they're pretty irrelevant, they don't care. You have a church against the city, second kind. And then you have a kind that I think is becoming more and more common, I'll just call it a church like the city. They're they're posers, they're imitators. A church like the city. And so these are like the cool churches and, and basically these churches just kind of adopt whatever the cultural norms are around them. They just kind of, kind of lick their finger and hold it up and see which way the wind is blowing. And yeah, yeah, okay, that's popular now. Okay, we'll be that. That's cool now. Okay, we'll be that. Oh, it's not acceptable. We're gonna get canceled if we believe this. Okay, we, we don't really believe that anymore. So they just kind of they just kind of adopt whatever the cultural value system is, whatever their sexual ethics tend to be at that very moment in time, and they come they become just like the culture to try to be cool, or try to be relevant. And again, we're seeing more and more churches kind of drift into that arena. Churches like the city, imitators, posers. The problem for a lot of these churches is they over time lose what makes them distinctly Christian. And so they stop preaching the Bible or they stop preaching parts of the Bible that the culture might find offensive. A lot of these churches you can go in on a Sunday morning and you won't even open your Bible at all. 
It's basically a motivational speech where the pastor will stand on the stage and kind of motivate people and give them three ways to do this or three ways to accomplish this or man, God wants to make you great in your life so you can conquer all the giants in your life and, and maybe at the end, they'll just kind of tack on a Bible verse so they can call it a sermon, but it really is not a sermon at all. It's really not a church at all. And so over time, what happens is they drift away from the gospel. They drift away from God's word. They assimilate to the culture and they become irrelevant in the culture. So that's the third kind. So you have a church in the city, a church against the city, a church like the city, and then there's a fourth type of church. And I think this is the kind of church God is looking for today in our culture. In this generation, I think this is the kind of church that God is looking for, that God longs for. And this is the kind of church I long for us to be as a church at New Life Community Church. Number four is a church for the city. So you have a church in the city, a church against the city, a church like the city, and finally a church for the city. And a church for the city is a church that kind of lives out the, the value system of Luke 14, Jeremiah 29, what we've just read. These are people that realize they are exiles. That is their identity. They are, as First Peter said, they are elect exiles. And so they don't imitate the culture. They don't adopt all the culture's value systems, but they embed themselves in the culture in order that they might reach the culture. And that's the kind of church I believe God has called us to be. This is a part of becoming a great commission church. It starts in our city, right where God has called us. It starts in our Jerusalem, in our Asheville. And listen, church family, I want you to understand this is not something that our church staff can do alone. This is not something that our elder team can do by ourselves. Man, we, we have done the very best we can to kind of establish local partnerships all over our city. I know so many of you are engaged in those partnerships. We are grateful for that. But the key for us becoming a church for the city is not just another program or another partnership. The key to us becoming the church God wants us to be a Luke 14 church, a Jeremiah 29 church, a church for the city is for every single one of us to become strategic missionaries. Right where we live, work, and play. To begin to ask the question, man, how, how do I incarnate Jesus? How do I incarnate the gospel in my neighborhood? And, and, and in my city and in my workplace and in my, my school campus or my college campus? Listen, church, at the end of the day, we have been called by a great king to go out into the highways and the byways of our city and to invite the poor and the sick and the orphan and the widow to the king's table. New Life, we've got to become a church for the city. A church for the city. Not a church just in the city. Not Definitely not a church against the city. Not a church like the city. We just become imitators of the culture around us. We are called to become a church for our city. I wanna give, give you three quick things that I think a church for the city is and then we'll be done, all right? Three things a church for the city is. If we wanna become the church God has called us to be, if we wanna reach our Jerusalem as God told us to, as Jesus told us to in Acts 1-8, we have to be marked by these three things. So a church for the city, number one, is always, always shaped by the gospel. We've gotta we've got shape everything we do around the gospel, everything we sing, everything we preach, everything we pray, all of our mission strategy, all of our discipleship strategy, our, our media content, like everything that we do, everything we plan, we work so hard on and we invest so many man hours on, everything has to center around the gospel of Jesus Christ or nothing else really matters that we do. 
As Tim Keller says, the, the gospel is the sharp point of the scalpel. I love that analogy. Just like a surgeon can't, can't get in to, to do his work and, 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 and fix things and heal things without a sharp point on the scalpel so a church can't get into culture and do their work without the gospel. And friends, I'm just telling you, there, there are a ton of churches out there with dull scalpels right now. And they're working hard and they're smashing their head against the wall and nothing's happening. They're not seeing any traction in their city and their neighborhoods and they're not seeing people come to faith and they're not seeing people's lives transformed. And so oftentimes it's because they've got a dull scalpel. They have moved away from the message that matters most. They've moved away from the gospel. They've become kind of social justice warriors or they're all about doing good things in their cities, but they've lost the message of hope. This great news, the best news ever, that there's a God in heaven who loves each and every one of us. Sent Jesus into our busted up world to live the life that we never could live. And to die a, a substitutionary death to pay for, pay for my sin and my rebellion against God and to pay for your sin and your rebellion against God. But he didn't stay dead. And three days later, he rose again, conquering death, sin, and hell to set us free. This is the best news the world has ever seen or heard, and it is ours. And without it, we are powerless as a church. And so church, understand, if we're gonna reach our city, if we're gonna reach our Jerusalem, if we're gonna put a dent in our Asheville, our city, our neighborhood, we have to be shaped by the gospel. We have to reorient our entire lives, our resources, our finances, how we allot our time, our free time, our vacation time around the gospel because that is the only thing that has the power to change a human heart and mind. So number one, a church for the city is always shaped by the gospel. Number two, a church for the city is always moved to action. It's always moved to action. In Jeremiah 29, it says there are two particular ways we ought to be moved to action. Number one is prayer. The second way is engagement. Oftentimes you have churches that do one or the other. So you have some churches that will, will pray, man, and they pray for revival in the nation and they pray for revival in the city and, and then they go home. And they never engage their neighbors and they never go downtown and they never work for justice in the city and they never do anything at all. They just, they just pray. And thank God they're praying. But there's no real action. There's no real engagement. You have other churches that never pray, but they're super involved in their city, man. They're, they're at homeless shelters every weekend and they're cleaning up parks and they're doing all kinds of things in their city, but they, they never undergird their, undergird their efforts with the power of prayer. And so they never really get any traction. Well, God calls us to be moved to action in two ways, prayer and engagement. We are to pray for our city the people of our city, and then we, we are to work for the welfare of our city. What that means, church, is that we are not huddled up in a holy huddle on this mountain on our campus called New Life Church. We are involved in culture. We are engaged in our city in real ways. We, we serve on PTOs at our kids' schools. We serve on, on HOAs in our neighborhoods. Man, we volunteer in our city. We clean up. We feed the poor. We clothe the homeless. We buy twin sheets and pillows for, for homeless women and children in our city and then come to the Nanny to have a good time. And we are, we are not bystanders in the place where God has placed us. We are called to be players on the field of the city where God has placed us at this time in this place for his glory. 
And so that's the second way a church for the city operates. First, shaped by the gospel. Second, move to action. And then finally, number three, a church for the city is known by their neighbors. A church for the city is known by their neighbors. This means that we're not an invisible church. We're not an invisible church. As one pastor I, I heard said, man, you, you know you're doing it right when people in your neighborhood, in your city, start saying things like, man, I, I don't believe what they believe. That's something about a dude 2,000 years ago is dead and then he's alive and I, I don't really know all that stuff and I don't know if I believe all that stuff and I, I don't really believe what they believe. But if they ever left, man, if they ever left our city, if they ever left our neighborhood, like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what we would do. We'd have to like, raise taxes. We'd have to hire a bunch of more government workers. I just, I'm not even sure what we would do if they left. Churches, we, church, we have to be the people that go to cookouts with our neighbors. We're not hiding from people. We're, we're at festivals in our city. We're at sporting events and concerts back when we could do stuff like that. And one day we'll be able to do it again. We're the people that bring meals in times of crisis to people in our neighborhoods. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. People know who we are. We're not hiding in some little church building. We're in the city, we're a part of the culture, we're with people, we're in their lives, we're loving them, we're seeking their good, we're pointing them constantly to their creator because we know that's the only place they're ultimately gonna find significance and purpose and hope and joy and satisfaction in this life. I wanna finish with something that Charles Spurgeon wrote in the 1800s. Spurgeon, one of the most gifted preachers probably ever to walk the planet. He, uh, he was in London, England. But here's the thing, as, as talented as Spurgeon was in the pulpit, um, he, he didn't just preach. His church was extremely involved in seeking the welfare of London. They were involved in caring for widows. They were involved in caring for orphans in London. They built homes for the poor in their city. They collected funds and built homes for the elderly. Back in the days, they really didn't have nursing homes or anything like that. Spurgeon and his church, they, they preached the gospel unashamedly, unapologetically. Jesus is the way, the truth and life. No man comes to the Father except by him. They preached the gospel clearly and powerfully, but they didn't stop there. They also demonstrated the power of the gospel in the city where God had placed them. And so consequently, God gave them a massive platform in the 1800s to engage London for the sake of the gospel. I wanna finish by, this will be on the screens for you. This is something that Charles Spurgeon wrote about um, churches and reaching cities. And I, I thought it was powerful. I wanna share it with you and we'll, we'll wrap it up. This is what Spurgeon wrote. He said, churches are not made that men of ready speech may stand up on Sundays and talk. And so win daily bread from their admirers. No, there is another end and aim for this. These places of worship are not built that you may sit comfortably and hear something that shall make you pass away your Sundays with pleasure. A church which does not exist to do good in the slums and the dens and the kennels of the city is a church that has no reason to justify its longer existing a church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight with evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood, 
A church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice and hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. No, not for yourself, O church, do you exist. The glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts and the highest honor to seek amid the foulest mire, the priceless jewels for which Jesus shed his blood to rescue souls from hell and to lead to God, to lead to hope, to lead to heaven. This is her heavenly occupation. Oh, that the church would always feel this. And so church, friend, here's the challenge. One challenge and we're done. Would you identify your personal mission field and then engage it? Would you identify your personal mission field and then engage it with all that you've got? And so what that means practically, friend, listen, if, if, you're, a, if you're a business owner, if you, if you own a, a restaurant or a gym or a shop of some sort, that you, you begin to sort of ask yourself the question, how, how can I leverage my business, not just for my sake and my financial well-being, but for the overall good of the city in a way that would point people in this city to the gospel? And if you're tuned in and you're, you're a nurse or a school teacher or a doctor, you begin to ask yourself the question, how can I leverage my career and how can I leverage my relational connections for the good of the people in this city in a way that would point them to their creator? And if you're a high school student or a middle school student or a college student, you begin to ask the question, man, how can I use the talents and passion that God has given me on my campus with my peers in a way that would invite them to the king's party, the king's feast? Church, would you pray and just ask God to show you what your role is in reaching our Jerusalem, Asheville, right here? for the glory of our King. Let's pray, then we'll sing. Father, would you make us a people for the city? God, would you, would you forgive us? God, we repent for, for times, maybe we were just a church in the city, we're just here. I mean, for God's sake, we're, we're four miles, literally four miles from downtown Asheville. We could walk there if we wanted to. Would you forgive us for, at times, just being a church in the city? just doing our own thing, not caring. God, help us never to be a church that's against the city. Help us never to become a church that's like the city, just imitates the culture around us. God, help us to be the church, that Jeremiah 29, that Luke 14 type of church that is, that is for the city, where we remember our identity, that we are elect exiles, and yet we are among the people, loving them, crying with them, celebrating with them, constantly pointing them to your son, Jesus, where they can find hope in life. Jesus, thank you for your words in Matthew 5 where you remind us that we are, we are the light of the world now. Thank you for reminding us that we are, we are a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. God, thank you for reminding us that we are, we are to let our light shine before others so that they could see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, God. Help us be that type of church. God, help us leverage this time 
in this place, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our schools, God, to be a people for this city so that they might see you in us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, the rightful king of this city and every other city. Amen.